This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman here filling in again for Tom this week. Most federal employees see retirement as a three-legged stool. You have the first annuity, the thrift savings plan, and social security. But could a fourth leg make for an even sturdier retirement? Savings bonds are yet another tool federal employees can use to boost their personal savings. I spoke with retired federal manager and financial counselor Abe Grungold, who started with a little history. There would be an employee from every agency who was the bond coordinator, and they would pass out the United States Savings Bonds pamphlets that you could obtain in the bank, along with a payroll allotment card. And you could select the amount of the bond that you wanted and how frequent you wanted to receive it. So you could buy a $50 bond or a $1,000 bond. And if you did the 50, you get, you know, 26 bonds, one every pay period. If you did the $1,000 bond, say a $100 bond, you wouldn't get it every 26 pay periods. You would get it once a month because you'd only be contributing $25 or however you wanted to do it. So this was an excellent program that the government offered for employees to do tax-deferred savings before there was a TSP. Then when the TSP was introduced, they continued the program. Unfortunately, technology has now ended that bond drive that they would have every year. And the Treasury wants everyone to have an online account, not to purchase them and to get a paper bond. We would receive them in the mail when you bought them. Or some people actually had them sent to the office. You know, it it ended a wonderful program because unfortunately what happened was the government put it on the responsibility of the employee and they weren't aware about it because the annual bond drive sort of educated employees and it gave them an opportunity to think about it. So I think that is somewhat lost now. You know, OPM does have that literature there that, you know, you can go in and search out U.S. savings bonds and it takes you to the area where it says you have to do it through the Treasury Direct. And again, it's tax deferred savings. It was available before there was a TSP. Now that there's a TSP, it's still an excellent investment in addition to your TSP, in addition to your FERS annuity, and it gives you that tax-deferred benefit where you can hold on to it for 30 years. Here I am, 65 years old. I now have a $10,000 savings bond that I purchased for 5000 and it's worth 16000 and I have to pay the taxes now when I cash it in, not you know, years ago when, when I was trying to grow it. So it does provide an excellent tax deferred investment, even today for employees. You know, if that is the case, and this can be a valuable tool for federal employees, can you explain yeah. more how that can combine with other aspects of retirement for federal employees? Today, federal employees have a three-legged stool for their retirement. They have their FERS annuity, they have their thrift savings plan, and they have Social Security. 
It's called the three-legged stool. But if you have personal savings, such as the United States savings bonds, that provides a fourth leg to the stool, a more secure retirement. Because let's say you don't receive that first annuity because you didn't put in enough years of federal service. So now you really only have three legs to your school. You have your TSP, you have your Social Security, and you have your savings bonds. It's just another important investment vehicle for you to plan for your retirement. You should always be thinking about saving for retirement. And certainly the government will give you the annuity. You will get the social security. If you invest properly and contribute, you'll have your thrift savings plan. And the savings bonds gives you an opportunity for an emergency investment during your life, during your career, that maybe something comes up like, you know, the rainy day fund. This is your rainy day investment. And they're good for 30 years. The E-bonds earn 2.1% now, and the I-bonds earn 6.89% presently. So you can save it for 30 years until they reach maturity and then cash them out when you're in retirement and you're in a lower tax bracket and maybe uh, the money will become very necessary for you to maybe pay for your grandchildren's college fund or maybe you want to go on a trip or buy a motorcycle, whatever you want to do in retirement, that money will come in handy. And I purchased them my entire federal career. And now that that I am retired, I have many that are coming to maturity and they're coming in at the right time for me to use them. Is there a right time to purchase a bond? You said that you've purchased them throughout your career. Is there you know, one time that might be better than another to, to start doing this? I think it's very important to start buying them early in your life because, you know, like everything, you get in the habit of doing it. You can start off small buying the $50 savings bond or the $100 savings bond and then work your way up. And then if you do it consistently, you will be amazed how much this account can grow over time. You know, I'm planning for my daughter's wedding for the the day she was born. I plan to repair my roof the first day I bought my home. I know these expenses may come down the road and it's a great way to save. It's a great way to defer uh, paying taxes on your income. And it's really the the rainy day fund, the nest egg, and you really should get in the habit of doing it periodically. It will become second nature to you when you do that. And I would always buy a savings bond, usually at the end of the year, when I knew I had some extra money. Sometimes I purchased it with my tax refund. I would get a sizable tax refund, and I would take that tax refund and immediately use it to purchase a savings bond. And if you do that alone, that alone with your tax refund, if you're fortunate to get that tax refund, I think you will be amazed over 30 years how much you can save and how much it will build up. You touched a little bit on this earlier, but there are, of course, different types of bonds available. Can you tell me a little bit more about what 
or maybe some of the benefits of each different type of bond and yeah. how much money are we really talking about here that you could come out at the other end with? There are two major types of savings bonds, the EE bond, which presently earned 2.1%, and then there are the I bonds. Now, the the I bonds earn 6.89%. Now, these interest rates change every six months. The E bonds, you can purchase an unlimited amount of E bonds. The I bonds presently, you can only purchase $10,000 worth of I bonds a year. When you buy them and you hang on to them, I had a client and they basically, this is all they purchased. They didn't invest in the stock market. They didn't invest anywhere, but they purchased savings bonds. And they accumulated almost $700,000 in savings bonds just by purchasing $1,000 savings bonds. And then during their lifetime, those bonds actually matured. And $1,000 savings bonds can turn into ten dollars or $15,000 at maturity, depending on the interest rate over the life of that bond. So they took their matured savings bonds and bought bigger savings bonds over time. So it wasn't the $1,000 savings bonds. They started buying $10,000 savings bonds. When you reach old age and retirement, you have to think about long-term care, going to a nursing home. And this is a important savings vehicle for you to fund those years uh, if you need it. If there was one piece of advice or one key takeaway here that you'd want federal employees to know, what would that be? I want them to know that they have to think about saving. It's not something that people think about when they start their position, but you have to think about your retirement. You have to think about savings. And I'll give you a perfect example. Say you're a federal employee and you've been in 10 years now as a federal employee and you're subject to a furlough. Okay, I went through a furlough for 30 days, 35 days was the longest furlough. I believe it was in 2018, 2019. And I had emergency savings to carry me through that furlough. If you do not have an emergency savings account, how are you going to pay your rent, your food bill, all these necessary bills that come in during a furlough? The savings bond would be your savior to start cashing in savings bonds to pay your rent, to pay your food bill. It's not just for retirement. It's a emergency tax-deferred savings. And this is very important. Yes, federal employees have to save in their TSP. It's, it's vital. It's so important. Yes, you have to have money in your bank account to pay your daily bills. But what happens if there's an unforeseen expense? And the United States savings bonds can provide that safety net for employees. Young federal employees, mid-year federal employees, try to start saving. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and financial counselor. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, how agencies can improve their anti-harassment programs with some promising practices from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I'm Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman, and you're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. Preventing harassment in the federal workplace starts at the very top with agency leadership. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission says that idea, along with a host of other promising practices, can help agencies strengthen their anti-harassment policies. New recommendations from EEOC are an update to a 2016 study, and they now include changes from the pandemic. I got more from EEOC's attorney advisor, Marquis Willoughby. It serves as an extension or complement to the EOC's 2016 Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace, which is a bipartisan report from the Commission's co-chairs. In 2017, the EOC issued a technical assistance document entitled Promising Practices for Preventing Harassment. That contains practices within core principles found in the Select Task Force report to assist all employers in preventing and addressing harassment. And so this new technical assistance document builds on that 2017 technical assistance document by focusing on promising practices for preventing and addressing harassment, specifically in the federal civilian workforce. It also contains practices that are required by EEO uh, Management Directive 715 or MD 715, uh, which is very specific to federal employees, whereas the previous document was a general document for employers. So we did not have the specific requirements tailored to the federal uh, civilian workforce. It also contains, in addition to those requirements from MD 715, it contains a non-exhaustive list of additional promising practices that we're recommending uh, by the EOC. Although federal agencies aren't required to adopt the additional recommended practices, they're strongly urged to consider adoption of those practices to improve their anti-harassment programs, uh, to prevent workplace harassment, and generally to have more effective compliance with the laws. What are some of the top recommendations that you have for agencies? It's hard to pick the top, the favorites like kids, but I think there's some here that particularly stand out. The promising practice that agencies should ensure that they have an anti-harassment program that's separate and distinct from its EEO program with neutral staff who are responsible for promptly, thorough, and impartially investigating harassment allegations. And ultimately, if there's a finding of harassment, the agency must ensure they take immediate and appropriate corrective action. That's really pivotal. That's why we have anti-harassment programs, is to promptly investigate the harassment in a thorough and impartial way, but also if harassment is found to occur, to take the appropriate immediate corrective action to make sure it does not recur. Another uh, practice that we'd like to highlight is that we recommend that agency heads issue and post an annual anti-harassment policy statement signed by the agency head, really showing that leadership is on board with anti-harassment efforts. And it should explain the type of conduct that's prohibited, how to report that harassment, and any consequences and accountability for engaging in harassment or retaliation. Another practice is uh, addressing things such as bullying, intimidation, and stalking, uh, what it is, and the fact that it will not be tolerated by the agency. Because of the growth in remote and teleworking in the federal sector, we know that uh, agencies should inform supervisors and managers about how to manage how to monitor, rather, 
online harassment, including harassment in, on a virtual platform. Another thing, we recommend that agencies adopt electronic tracking systems to analyze where the problem areas are and to also evaluate whether or not their anti-harassment programs are effective in preventing and addressing harassment. And then finally, another practice is that we advise agencies to consider trauma-informed training for all personnel who may receive or respond to allegations of harassment or or harassing conduct. Now, this is especially important for investigators or for anyone who is receiving these reports of harassment to be culturally competent to handle people who may have experienced trauma. I want to dive in on a couple different areas that you just touched on. So the first one being, you said that agency heads should be essentially responsible for posting an anti-harassment document or policy Can you talk a little bit more about the role of leadership in implementing these policies and why it's important to kind of set that standard? Leadership plays a pivotal role in preventing and correcting harassment. EEOC's Management Directive 715 makes it clear that a model EEO program hinges on demonstrated commitment from agency leadership which involves having the agency head clearly communicating to employees, including supervisors and managers, about the agency's commitment to preventing and correcting workplace harassment. To do this, leaders must ensure the agency has an anti-harassment program that's separate and distinct from the EEO program, and that the program has neutral staff outside of the entity involved in the allegations who are dedicated and trained to promptly, thoroughly, and impartially investigate allegations of harassment. And ultimately, if there's a finding of harassment, ensure that type of immediate and appropriate corrective action that will ensure the harassment does not recur. Leaders must also ensure that the agency has sufficient funding for the anti-harassment programs, including, you know, personnel, any other type of resources necessary to prevent harassment and retaliation. And also leaders have to ensure that investigations of harassment begin promptly, which is defined by MD-715 as within 10 calendar days, at least. Sometimes it has to begin well before 10 days, but at the very least, it has to begin within 10 calendar days of receipt of harassment allegations. Another thing that you touched on that I found pretty interesting was you talked about the role of online harassment Obviously, agencies have seen a major increase in telework and remote work. Have you seen that have an effect on the way that harassment exists in the federal workspace? And did that shape at all the way that you wrote or created this guidance? Remote work and telework can change the platform of harassment. And our policies and our programs should be specific about the different ways that harassment can manifest in a particular workplace or particular agency. Employees and supervisors can be subjected to harassment through online or virtual platforms while working, just as they can be if they're actually in the physical office. And so in recognition that remote work and telework have become such a huge, huge component of the federal workplace, this document recommends that anti-harassment policies and training incorporate discussions about how the agency's anti-harassment policy may be violated through work-related conduct that occurs on virtual or online platforms, including on social media. Additionally, this document notes agencies should 
clearly explained that the use of agency issued devices such as laptops or cell phones to engage in online harassment and abuse will not be tolerated. Uh, also, you get you know, how such harassment through email, of course, through text messaging, um, any other you know electronic device. We also recommended that training address any changes to the reporting or investigation process as a result of increased remote or virtual work. And if you are an agency who looks at this guidance, puts some of the practices into place if you haven't already, are there ways to measure change over time and how effective the policies are? MD-715 contains several requirements for agency anti-harassment programs, including a requirement for anti-harassment policies that comply with EEOC standards. We have an MD-17 about uh, the requirement about beginning investigations in a prompt manner, which is within 10 calendar days of, of receiving the report. We have the requirement that an anti-harassment program must be separate and distinct from the EEO process or program. That's very important. There's a requirement that agencies have policies that are designed to address harassment before it become severe or pervasive, or it escalates to the level of unlawful harassment. That is something that we emphasize. That's what, you know, these practices are, are largely designed to prevent unwelcome conduct from escalating to becoming severe or pervasive. And also there's within MD-715 a requirement that agencies establish a firewall between their anti-harassment coordinator and program and the EEO director. We recognize there may be a conflict of interest between these two programs, so they should be separate and there should be a firewall to make sure there's not a conflict of interest. Now, agencies have to report on these measures to the EEOC on an annual basis. There's more of this to the MD-17 than anti-harassment uh, programs, but they are an integral part of what they have to report on each year. And failure to meet these requirements are considered deficiencies in EEO programs that must be corrected. And we are here at the EEOC to partner with the agency to show meaningful progress if they are deficient in their anti-harassment programs. And agencies just generally should continuously assess their anti-harassment programs to ensure that they are effective at preventing and correcting harassment. There should be periodic evaluation of trends in harassment complaints, which requires a tracking system, taking in data about your an agency's response to harassment so that you can identify strategies to prevent and correct any harassment that may be occurring in the workplace and also just generally to improve your anti-harassment programs and policies. Marquis Willoughby is attorney advisor at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And that's it for this week's Fed Life. As always, let us know what you'd like us to cover. Tom Temin will be back next week. Until then, I'm Drew Friedman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search Fed Life. <laughs>